You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today I'm interviewing my good friend Karen Sacon. Karen's a new fellow and an expert in women's health, working part-time general practice and part-time in a women's health clinic. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on a podcast that I myself have been listening to for years. Oh, great. And really good to hear that you're a fan. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about the pill. How would you approach a consultation for this? It's really common, even for a male GP like myself. (laughs) Yeah, look, it really is. Um, I'm sure that as a young female GP, I see it a bit more than you do, Sean. But nevertheless, it's something every GP will manage regularly. For me, when a woman comes in um, for her pill script, it's an opportunity to discuss so much more. As GPs, we're at the frontier of primary health. One of our main roles is prevention. It's an opportunity to discuss the various screening measures that apply to women. So that includes things like cervical, STI, breast and bowel cancer screening, you know, blood pressure and cardiovascular disease risk factor assessments, um, assessing for any mental health or other drug and alcohol issues. It's also an opportunity to discuss preconception care and um, consider other common women's health issues, you know, iron deficiency, gynecological issues. Women of a huge age range take the pill from adolescence to perimenopausal women. Yeah, look, uh, I think that's why I have grave concerns about pharmacies and online companies trying to get in on pill scripts for these reasons. I think, you know, it's just a simple thing and GPs do that and it's in and out. Uh, We can do that just as easily. But, you know, that's clearly not the case. It is this opportunity for care for a woman as a whole. And a regular GP is obviously the best placed person to do this. Mm. So, look, if we just go back to basics, can you explain how the pill works to prevent pregnancy? Yeah, the primary mode of action of the combined estrogen and progesterone methods is by inhibiting ovulation by the suppression of the gonadotropins. But it also thickens cervical mucus and thins the endometrium like the progesterone-only methods do. The two combined options are the pill and the vaginal ring, which is NuvaRing. All of the other options like Implanon, Marina and Kylina IEDs, Depo and the mini pill are progesterone-only. Interestingly, contraceptive use varies hugely by countries. So in Australia, the pill remains the most commonly used contraceptive method. They say up to 80% of Australian women will use it at some stage during their reproductive lives. We've been using them in Australia since the 1960s. There's now a large range of products available with over 30 different uh, registered brands. Okay, so like you said, there's lots of different pills out there these days. Can you discuss how you would approach deciding which one to use? Yeah, it can definitely feel a bit overwhelming that there are so many pills available with different doses and different estrogen and progesterone formulations. I think, you know, a lot of women will have come in already having tried a few options already. And if they like a certain one, then I think that's fine. You know, if they've had that personal experience to use that one again. I think we can all agree there's very little usefulness in the multiphasic pills. It's just more confusing for the patient. Um, So I would generally stick with the uh, monophasic pill. Historically, we always used Levlin, which is a mid-dose pill with 30 micrograms of ethanol estradiol and 150 micrograms of levonorgestrel. Those are both synthetic hormones. But now we're actually recommending that starting with a low-dose 20 microgram pill is actually quite reasonable because it does have a lower VTE risk. So that's something like Femtab 20. A lot of people start with a high-dose pill if the person has acne or hirsutism or PCOS, but that's actually not recommended once again because of the higher rates of VT. So you should actually be reserving you know, those very high-dose pills for certain situations and for short-term use only, ideally, not just routinely in anyone who has acne. 
I'm frequently speaking to women in their 30s who were started on, you know, Diane 35 or the equivalent in their teens when they had acne and have stayed on it despite, you know, not actually having acne anymore for many years. So I think it's quite reasonable in that situation to discuss reducing to a lower dose or to a different formulation pill for people like this. Cost is often a factor you need to consider. So not all pills are on the PBS. And that's important to know because it can be, you know, hugely varying costs of different pills. So some of the newer ones include things like Zoli and Clara. These actually cost around $120 for a four-month supply. That compares to something like Levelin or Febtab, which are on the PBS, which are only you know, $14 for four months or $6 if they have a healthcare card. I won't go into too much depth into the different types, but essentially the pills with the new progesterones, so things like uh, Ciproterone, Dianagest, uh, Drospirinone, those sort of ones tend to improve the androgenic effects of acne and hirsutism better. But some are also associated with higher BTE risks. So in most situations, actually, starting with the standard pill first is recommended, as it may well be sufficient to manage their symptoms and with less risk. The new formulations like Zoli and Clara tend to um, have the more natural hormones, and so they are growing in popularity a lot, especially for the management of PMS and PMDD. There's a lot of evidence for them. Sometimes you have to troubleshoot issues a woman has has had with a different pill, and you need to consider um, whether they need a different progesterone or a higher estrogen dose to manage that. It can also be a bit of trial and error for that individual. Yeah, thanks. And recently, we've also had to consider what's available due to worldwide stock shortages due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's an added challenge. There are a lot of women who are on the pill for non-contraceptive reasons. What might these be? Yeah, these days it's actually quite rare for someone to just be taking the pill or really any hormonal contraceptive for that matter for its contraceptive benefits alone. If it's purely for contraception, the pill very well may not be their best option given average or typical use shows the pill to be in the low 90s, so around 92% effective at preventing pregnancy. And that compares to larks, which generally have over 99% efficacy. So sorry, just to confirm, um, larks are long-acting reversible contraceptive options. Thanks. And we'll go into a bit more depth about that later. Other very common reasons to use the pill uh, would be things like acne, PMS or PMDD management, PCOS, hirsutism, endometriosis, menorrhagia or dysmenorrhea, iron deficiency, menstrual migraines, recurrent ovarian cysts. So there's quite a few reasons you might also be on the pill. A lot of people also just like the convenience of having control over when they get their period with the pill, um, you know, for work reasons or, or various other reasons as well. Mm, thanks. Um, so something we all need to make sure we know about are the contraindications to the pill. So can you tell us a bit about the contraindications? Yeah, definitely. So. I think, you know, if you're prescribing something that has the potential for serious adverse effects as the pill does, it's your job to know the select reasons that a woman should not be on the pill. You wouldn't believe how many women I recommend come off the combined pill due to contraindications every year. You're probably all familiar with the MEC criteria, but if you're not, it's very helpful to make sure you are. MEC4 criteria are the absolute contraindications where it's deemed to be an unacceptable level of risk to prescribe it. That includes things like having had a migraine with aura within the past five years, being a smoker over the age of 35, having a personal history of blood clots, ischemic heart disease, stroke, TIA, complicated valvular or congenital heart disease, severe liver disease, lupus, breast cancer, and uncontrolled hypertension. So that's actually quite a big list. There are several MEC 2 and 3 criteria as well to be aware of. If they have a few cumulative minor risk factors, you actually should consider whether this is the safest option for them. So let's say they have a few MEC 2 criteria. So they're you know, a 40-year-old obese woman with diabetes and hypercholesterolemia, for example. Another important consideration is if they're postpartum or breastfeeding. 
It's contraindicated when they're under six weeks postpartum and breastfeeding due to the VTE risk once again, and if they're under six months if fully breastfeeding as it can reduce breast milk production. Uh, you should also stop using the estrogen-containing pills after the age of 50 and start to reconsider their use in someone in their 40s. Okay. So what important things do you mention to anyone starting the pill for the first time or even just a repeat script for the pill? Yeah, to me, the really key things are, you know, the first thing would be explaining the effectiveness of contraception. So I think a lot of women actually expect all hormonal contraceptive options are the same, but um, really the typical use for, for something like the pill is in the low 90s, um, which means up to 10% of people would fall pregnant every year using the pill. The next thing would be to discuss the side effects. So estrogen and progesterone combined options tend to um, cause things like nausea and bloating, headaches, mood changes, reduced libido, weight gain, breast tenderness. And look, some of these settle over time, but not all of them do. More serious but rare issues are things like breast cancer, blood clots, cardiovascular disease and stroke. And that should also be discussed because those are quite serious. Ensuring that they're comfortable with the missed pill protocol. Um, so, and to reiterate this, I actually just tend to give them the handout from SHQ or Family Planning, which has this all clearly spelt out on it. I'm sure you, you probably remember this, but if you are under 24 hours um, late in taking that tablet, the reliability of the pill is still maintained. So all that you have to do is take the tablet as soon as you remember, and then take the next tablet at the usual time that you would. If you're over 24 hours late, that's when it starts to be a bit of a problem. And it does kind of depend on where you are in the pill packet as to whether, like, as to how big of an issue it is. So you're particularly high risk of becoming pregnant if you miss an active tablet at the beginning or at the end of the strip. There are specific instructions for this to follow, but generally consider emergency contraception if it's within five days of the unprotected intercourse. Also making sure that they continue to use barrier um, contraception, so condoms, until they've taken seven consecutive tablets again, because it does need that time to work again. The other thing I always mention is basically how long it does actually take to be effective. So if you start the pill at the beginning of the cycle, so within day one to five, it's effective immediately. If you start it at any other time of the cycle, it, it is gonna take that full seven days to be effective. I always explain how to use it um, because, you know, for new users, the concept of these active and inactive tablets can be really confusing. Most pill packs still have the 21 active and seven inactive tablets, but a lot of them are starting to have 24 and, um, and four, lots of different combinations now. There's evidence to say though, that if you're on one of the 27 and seven, uh, 21 and seven packets, um, that you should actually reduce the uh, inactive tablets to four days. It's, it's actually more effective. Um, I don't routinely tell all women this because, like, especially straight away, just because it can be a bit too confusing, but in the long run, if they're still using it long-term, I think that's actually really good because anything that can make the pill more effective is, is going to be worthwhile. I think with all, you know, with all hormonal contraception, make sure that you reiterate that it doesn't prevent um, against STIs. And so please continue to use condoms with any new partners. Another thing that I always bring up is compliance. So just explaining that it is really important, um, you know, to ideally take the pill at the same time each day. Um, and there's lots of ways to help a young woman to do this. So there's apps now, there's, you know, you can set an alarm each day, but it is, you know, really important. Even a single missed pill can, can lead to pregnancy. And then the last thing I tend to bring up is just times when you might expect maybe that it won't be as effective. So if they have gastro and they're, you know, have diarrhea and vomiting, et cetera. Interestingly, we all hear about antibiotics affecting the efficacy of the pill and they say use, you know, additional contraception during that time. But that's actually a myth. There's only a couple of antibiotics that that's an exception. Um, and that's things like rifampicin. So not very common antibiotics by any means. 
It's also quite important to consider whether there are any other medications that might have an impact. So especially certain liver enzyme-inducing medications can interact. So that's most commonly things like anti-epileptics. Lastly, when I start the pill, I always tend to just give a, a short three to four month script. And that's because, you know, it gives you that opportunity to see them again and review if they're having any side effects, you know, a few months after starting the pill, recheck their blood pressure, see how they're going with compliance. If a woman is experiencing adverse effects, you know, you might want to consider trying another formulation or that you might actually want to try a different um, form of contraception altogether. I tend to give the written family planning information sheet as well. They have an amazing amount of information in them. And in Perth, at least, I know that um, SHQ actually has a fantastic sexual health helpline that they can call for any advice about issues with the pill. Look, I think that's really important, isn't it? It's so much to take in on one consult. It's really important to give people something to take away and read and, and get them back in the near future to, to reiterate it. So can you just quickly discuss about skipping periods when you take the pill? Yeah, so the evidence shows it's quite safe to cycle the active tablets um, to skip the breakthrough bleeds. A Cochrane review didn't demonstrate any additional safety issues when taking it continuously without the placebo pill for up to 12 months. It can be really convenient for women to be able to choose when they get their period. It can also be really helpful to manage things like iron deficiency or endometriosis, um, menstrual migraines and um, PMDD. I usually recommend they have one to two normal cycles before starting to skip. Some people can skip for months on end without starting to bleed, whereas others can only do so for two to three months. It varies from person to person and depending on the pill that they're using. If they really want to do it for a prolonged time, it may just require a higher dose pill to be able to do that. Sometimes people worry about not getting a period every month because um, they feel it helps to reassure them that they're not pregnant. But I think you can reassure them that it's not actually a period that they're getting, but rather a withdrawal bleed from not having the hormones for those few days. When the pill was invented, interestingly, the creators actually thought people would find it more natural to have a period each month, and that's why they created the inactive tablets, um, to give people that monthly bleed. Wow, it's really uh, interesting, isn't it, <laughs> when you look at the history of it. Well, that's all we have time for today. Uh, can you give us three take-home messages, please, Karen? Yeah, sure. So the first one would be, I think, be aware of the reasons you should avoid estrogens and actively ask about them because, um, you know, before you write a script, don't just assume it's been done before or that nothing has changed since they were last seen because that might have been a whole year ago. Secondly, I would say a big role of general practice is preventative and proactive healthcare. There are a lot of conditions women commonly suffer from that we can identify early when we opportunistically ask when they're there for another consult. And lastly, I would say it's important to, to discuss um, the best contraceptive choice for each woman um, in any pill consult. Uh, we're going to go into this in more depth in the next episode where we talk a bit more about long-acting reversible contraceptives. I've provided some links from Family Planning, um, NPS, and a couple other places for our listeners to look to for further information about everything we've discussed today, which will be in the episode notes. I hope this will, was helpful and not too basic for those of you out here, there who I have no doubt see this consultation every day of your working life. <laughs> Great. Look, thank you, Karen. I've learned a huge amount and um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to learning more about LARCs. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Oh,